0: Welcome to Mill Liberty, the voice of liberty for a new generation. All right, Jim Walsh and Matt Kibbe. Ron Stossel, welcome to Mill Liberty.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be
0: back. Hey, Caleb, I mean this. It's great to be with you. Thank you for the invite. This week, we are going to be going over the myths and realities that surround monopolies. Teddy Roosevelt hated, hated small government gateway into space will
1: help alleviate a lot of this problems. It was a fateful error we took a hundred years ago with this kind of monopolization of banking and centralization of money and credit.
0: Automation, streamlined productivity, and cost effectiveness.
1: There's two big government parties, and one of them is, is red and one of them is blue. We
0: are creating a community of liberty lovers. So sit back, relax... And enjoy the ride. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's edition of the Liberty Podcast. I am your host, Caleb Franz, and this is the voice of Liberty for a new generation. Um, I do want to apologize for last week. Um, I just did not have the time to uh, book a guest or uh, set aside. A time to record the program for, for last week, so I do want to apologize for that. However, we do have a really good show about a really important subject that uh, I am very excited to bring to you this week. Um, so sit back for that because we are going to be getting into that in just a moment with our guest. First, I want to go over an important discussion um, surrounding the Afghanistan war. Because we are possibly seeing the beginning stages, the beginning phases of the end of the Afghanistan war. Which is something that I personally did not think would happen uh, for at least just by the track record and just by the way that we have always done things. This really felt like um, the most permanent war that America has ever faced because it is the most permanent war that America has ever faced. Um, uh, easily uh, toppling the Vietnam War as the longest war that we have ever had. And now we may be seeing the end of it on the horizon. I say that with the greatest grain of salt because so much can go wrong between now and when we're supposedly supposed to get out of Afghanistan. But I don't want to be too terribly Um, pessimistic, even though I do want to be realistic about it. I'm not going to try to lead you on, but I'm also not going to try to crush your hopes either. I just want to get you to understand that while this may not happen in the way that we hope it might, it's a very, very good step because it means that the momentum is finally there, that uh, the, the pressure that we have been putting Um, Not just libertarians, I'm not just talking about libertarians, though we have had a very strong, um, a very consistent voice in the matter, Um, but the pressure that the American people have been putting on their representatives uh, and just how increasingly unpopular... Uh, That war has become—now, granted, I I don't think that it's uh, just because of that. I do think things such as the Afghanistan Papers that was released back in December um, that we did a show on uh, around that time frame— Uh, I do think that did help along with a lot of other things, but I do want to get you to look at this in in the most realistic way possible. While it may not be in fact the end of of the Afghanistan war as we know it, there's way too much uh, time for for something to go wrong before I am ever really willing to, to accept that until it actually happens, but it's a very good step and we need to acknowledge that because Despite what the warmongers say, despite what the neoconservatives say, despite what the interventionist military industrial complex in Washington, D.C. and abroad would like for the people to believe they are finally sick and tired, they don't want this war anymore. They don't want any war anymore. And while the people may want to keep uh, the American population and the American, um, the the uh, the homeland, so to speak, they may want to keep them safe. Endless wars are not the way to go about that, and we are finally starting to convince people that that is in fact true. You cannot win and and keep uh, your military strength by fighting endless wars. More and more people are starting to wake up to that fact, and even if the Afghanistan war does not end in a 14-month time frame or however long uh, that the president and the the State Department said that it would take, even if that does not happen, it's a good step. Now to get into the subject of this week's program, we are going to be talking about um, something that we hadn't actually really discussed really at all on this program even though we have discussed many things similar to it um, and surrounding it the issue of standing armies Um, standing armies as the founding fathers uh, saw them were a existential threat to American liberty and if uh, many founding fathers such as Thomas Jefferson And this is one of the few, as I have mentioned here on the program before, the issue of military intervention and and foreign interventions, um, that was one of the few areas that the Founding Fathers almost universally agreed upon when it comes to uh, the direction that they wanted America to take and the position that they wanted America to take. Uh, While they may have disagreed on monetary policy or the size of... Uh, or centralization or decentralization of the uh, seat of government, they generally agreed that standing armies were a serious threat to American liberty and it should not be allowed to to happen. yet that's exactly what has happened. So that's why I brought on uh, Zach Yost, uh, now, we brought him back whenever we talked about the Afghanistan papers back in December. Now, we're bringing him on again to discuss an article that he recently wrote in The American Conservative that is very good, and I will be linking it into the show notes uh, for this week for you to look over and read. He wrote an entire article about uh, the dangers of Uh, standing armies and some of the movements that's happening uh, across the states that's uh, trying to bring it back to the ideal vision of what the founding fathers uh, saw and what the founding fathers wanted uh, america's foreign policy and military policy to be Uh, so we have uh, a lot to discuss with him so without further ado please enjoy my interview with zach yost on standing armies uh, in america All right, Zach, welcome back to the program. Uh, I am very happy to have you back here on the
1: Liberty podcast. Welcome aboard. Thanks so much, Caleb. Glad to be back.
0: So uh, the primary reason I wanted to bring you on this week was because um, you had recently written an article in the American Conservative uh, entitled Opposing Standing Armies, A Great American Tradition. And this is something that... I think even you know in in our current f- foreign policy discussions and debates that we have today, this is something that I think um, tends to go by the wayside as far as uh, a, a topic for discussion um, when we're when we're talking about our place in the world uh, and what we're supposed to do as far as. Uh, our national defense is concerned, um, so I was really excited to to see that you had written about it. Um, first, give us a, sort of a brief overview of, of, of basically the thesis of, of what it is that uh, you were trying to make a point um, in the article, um, as well as sort of a little bit of background of, um, of the history of standing armies and, and what exactly that means in the first place for anyone who, who might not know.
1: So my my main point uh, was just to try and draw attention to the fact that, like, in contrast to today, where you know we can spend a trillion dollars on the military and all of its you know quasi military agencies like the CIA and things like that, mm-hmm. and people are still like, oh my god we don't spend enough on our military, the military's, you know, stripped bare (laughs) that for one might say the majority of our country's history, the idea of even having a standing army to begin with was kind of viewed as bad and crazy and not in the mainstream. And, uh, this goes, I mean, even (laughs) before the country was founded, you know, uh, the founding fathers and the framers just had an aversion to, to standing militaries. And I have a, a quote I liked a lot from a guy named Elbridge Jerry, who was, uh, he's actually where Gerrymander comes from, <laughs> but um, one of the signers of the declaration. And he declared that a standing army is a bane of liberty. And there are Federalist papers written about, you know, oh, a standing army will never have a very large standing army. The militia will do most of the work. And um, sociologist Robert Nisbet, who I just love so much, he had this very funny quote that most of the time the Continental Congress acted as if it was more afraid of a bona fide American army coming out of the Revolutionary War than it was of a British victory. So it's just this long history of being opposed to a standing army, let alone an army (laughs) that's stationed all across the globe. (laughs) And that, you know, the revered, hallowed founding fathers, who people who are generally in favor of a, a huge, you know, army and national defense kind of apparatus just claim to adore, they're the ones who viewed it as kind of, you know, a stepping stone to tyranny. So I just point that out and argue here in the United States today, we're very secure if we look at things from what is the purpose of national defense. And the purpose of national defense is to existentially preserve our way of life. So to keep us from being conquered or you know threatened by some other power that can infringe upon us. And for several reasons, One might say we're the most secure power in in history. On the north and the south, we have Canada and Mexico, which are very weak powers. And in fact, on our entire hemisphere of the globe, we only have kind of weak powers who could not threaten us and are generally friendly to us. To the east and the west, we have the vast moats of the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. And no power currently in existence is capable of crossing those oceans in force to invade and conquer us. So all of our foreign policy threats are really minor in nature relative to the existential threat of being invaded and conquered and destroyed. A caveat, uh, someone might bring up nuclear weapons... And on the one hand, yes, uh, nuclear weapons are hazardous and dangerous. But because of the logic of mutually assured destruction and the United States is basically uh, insurmountable second strike capability, meaning our ability to, if anyone was crazy enough to start a nuclear war, they would not be able to knock out all of our missiles. So we'd be able to hit them with nuclear missiles. So it's it's next to impossible that that would happen. Uh, we're very secure. Our threats are things like terrorism, you know, uh, international crime, things like that. and you don't need you know hundreds of thousands of troops and you know uh, strike brigades and everything to deal with that. So I make the point we're very secure and my final point is that, not only would it remove the temptation for nation building and going on crazy crusades all around the world that only end up in disaster if you don't have an army to do that, but it would also be beneficial for things here at home. Uh, uh, I, a stat that I've quoted in several articles, just because it's it's so, on the one hand, fascinating, but also kind of crazy, uh, is a survey done... Um, last fall by uh georgetown university found that the average voter believes the u.s is two-thirds of the way to the edge of a civil war which is just kind of really scary to think about and it you can see it even if it doesn't go to that level there's a lot of polarization a lot of just kind of visceral hatred of different parts of the country against one another and uh if you're honest uh, having a standing army just makes things worse in that if you don't control the apparatus of the federal government, that means the other side will, whoever the other side is. And that kind of ratchets up the stakes of the game because that we don't know what the other side will do. They seem kind of crazy and they hate us. They might use the army against us is at the root logic that I don't think a lot of people explicitly think of, but underlying all of the federal government's powers is its ability to enforce that. And a standing army would, in the end, play a large role in that. So that's kind of why I just wanted to bring it up. It's not going to happen anytime soon, but I think it would be great if more people started talking about the fact that we're kind of in a historical aberration here, having such a large standing army, mm-hmm. and there's lots of historical reasons for why that is.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, something uh, there's there's a lot of different directions that we can go from that uh, from from everything that you sort of laid out there. Um, I think that a lot of people get confused uh, today when when you sit when you bring up uh, the idea of a standing army as opposed to um, a militia because it's so, you know, today like that we think of the militia as sort of like the National Guard versus a standing army, um, which is just, you know, the the military uh, presence across the globe and, and things like that. I think that's what most people think of. So it's hard to sort of separate those two. Um, could you clarify a, a little bit um, what you mean uh, when, you, when you're talking about like, what the defense side would actually be um, when you take away the, the standing army or when you significantly uh, downsize that standing army.
1: Sure. So uh, you, you mentioned there's kind of some melding of the National Guard into the army, and that, that's correct. The, the National Guard is considered the militia for legal purposes, there were several acts at the beginning of the 20th century that kind of codified and formalized the National Guard's relation with the federal government and how things are run. And the National Guard is basically used as just another part of the military. Uh, Constitutionally, um, in Article One, Clause 15, the um, Constitution gives Congress the power to call upon the state militias for three things. To execute the laws of the Union, to suppress insurrections, and to repel invasions. Um, so you might wonder why having you know, the Hawaiian National Guard deployed to Iraq, where it fits under those three <laughs> things. Um, so... The um, In the ideal, I suppose, kind of world, the National Guard would not be at the beck and call of the federal government for any time it wants to do anything. As the standing army, meaning the federal army, the the army that is part of the federal government and is funded via congressional appropriations, that cannot exceed two years, which we can talk about why that is in a a second, um, that can just be sent wherever for whatever reason, basically. And there is a movement in several states, and I discussed this briefly in my article, to try and bring that back. And interestingly, in several of the states, the bill has actually been introduced by uh, veterans. Basically, the, the bill is just called the Defend the Guard Act, and it basically says that the state where it's passed cannot hand over control of the state National Guard to the federal government um, uh, for purposes of uh, basically fighting, <laughs> unless there has been a declaration of war. So if this was kind of everywhere, you know, 20 years ago, the National Guard units wouldn't have been deployed over to Iraq or uh, Afghanistan because there is no official declaration of war. So okay. it just kind of adds a bit of a speed bump to uh, Congress, uh, you know, just willy-nilly getting us into conflicts all over the place. Um, now, the Constitution stipulates that a the, um, the standing army... Uh, So in um, the Congress has the power to raise armies, but it it's interesting. It kind of has a stipulation here. It says to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. So the, the framers put that in the Constitution because they did not want a permanent army. The kind of idea behind that was every two years we have to re-up the funding for a standing army. It's, it's not a permanent thing. Mm-hmm. And in contrast, there is not that stipulation when it comes to the Navy. And it's kind of easy to understand why if the framers were worried that a standing army would be a threat to domestic liberty. Navy, you know, is not that big a threat to that. <laughs> so, um, the that does does that answer your question? Is kind of what the divide is there to some extent. Yeah, and I and I I'm glad
0: you brought up the point of the navy too, because I think when when you when you speak of this uh, in today's terms, especially because you know a lot of people, I don't necessarily agree with this notion, but a lot of people when they um, when when they talk about issues uh, surrounding uh, foreign policy and America's uh, place and involvement in the world, they will bring up that it's a very different world from when the founders uh, were around and they couldn't have foreseen that this would have happened. So to suggest that we can't possibly have a, a, a military, I think most people think of like, well, you can't have a standing army. That means you can't have an active military uh, at all. Um, which is not necessarily what that means um because they actually were fine to some degree with um with having a navy um a- around just the the army uh, side of of things would be sort of
1: decentralized so to speak is that fair yeah, to say yeah exactly yes and um in uh i think it's uh federalist uh 46 i think uh, Madison talks about how <laughs> uh basically uh the United's like I think it, it kind of goes back to the roots of the founders. Some people like to say, Oh, the founders were libertarians. Some people might argue they're more, rather than classical liberals, they were classical Republicans with a small R kind of mm-hmm. ancient Rome, which they invoked quite a lot, <laughs> where the idea is it's everyone's job to defend the country. And he kind of makes the argument, you know, by doing that, you know, any invader would just be, you know, swarmed by the, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans kind of idea. So definitely aren't... uh don't want to turn into a like a disarmed pacifist kind of nation, um, but um, rather making an argument, kind of the best way to defend the country and also to defend domestic liberties. And I definitely am in agreement that a navy is a good and necessary thing that we should have. It uh, gives us some power projection um, and the what I'd love to happen <laughs> that I'm hoping my article is kind of playing some small role in maybe getting the conversation started eventually would be if you know uh, if scholars would start of you know our kind of non-interventionist libertarian classical liberal bent would start putting out proposals for what America's force structure could look like. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. If if
1: we left our kind of the, the status quo and like what kind of Navy we would have, what would the Marine Corps look like? And it would require a lot of conversations that we just don't have right now in terms of identifying core, you know, true national interests of the United States and what force structure we need to accomplish that but i yeah i definitely am not arguing abolish the navy and disarm everything and get rid of all of the nukes or anything Mm -hmm. and it is important to qualify that getting rid of or greatly reducing the standing army does not mean you know turning into um uh, el salvador or um uh, whatever Central American country doesn't have an, an, an any mil- military to speak of.
0: Right. And, and I think that's an important distinction because as soon as a lot of people might hear something, um, you know, someone speak of that, it sounds like you're just, uh, you're just completely, you know, saying let's completely abolish the Department of Defense or, um, you know, any sort of military presence that we could possibly have, which is not necessarily the case at all, it's just the the current state of our military apparatus is not even close to what uh, the Founders envisioned. And actually, something else that you brought up about about how the Founders sort of envisioned the people being a a part of that national defense um, brings and and how they viewed standing armies, I I believe it would be appropriate to say that it sort of brings some um, it brings some uh, perspective in how they view things like the Second Amendment um, and, a, and a, another layer of uh, perspective on that issue as well uh, because most people look at the first section of the Second Amendment and the second section of the Second Amendment, the section talking about um, militias and then the section talking about the people bearing arms um, as two sort of separate things uh, when the founders you know, very much did not.
1: Oh, exactly. And I mean, um, the the Federalist 29, I, I believe, is the one where Hamilton is, I think it's called concerning the militia, actually. Uh, he's trying to reduce people's fears that having a standing army and having uh, the federal government be able to nationalize the militia when there's an invasion or something, he's trying to calm fears down that uh, it'll be used as a... Uh, a unit of tyranny and he he actually kind of basically says like the point with the militia the advantage is if the federal government is issuing tyrannical orders because the militia is made up of you know regular people Mm -hmm. that rather than carry them out they'll they'll basically march on washington (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah i definitely agree that having this you know i would argue historically accurate understanding of the founder's conception of what the militia was does definitely support a very uh, pro-private firearm ownership reading of the Second Amendment, not, you know, some people try, oh, that means that, you know, You can only have a firearm if you're in the militia, and uh, the militia is the National Guard now, so no private firearm ownership. Right.
0: It's very much – most people look at something like that as well as, I would argue, the entire Constitution, but especially um, with the Second Amendment from a very modernist lens, a very uh, modernist – excuse me, not uh, modest, but uh, modernist um, uh, eyes – uh that just looks at the world today and they just sort of assume that the world has always been that way, or at least the structure of the United States has always been that way. So if the National Guard is the militia, then obviously the founders were talking about um arming the National Guard and not keeping the people um to to allow them to have the right to bear arm, uh which is just a, a false uh a false premise. Yeah. Um, So something else that uh, I I really think is important to bring up is that, you know, this is something that a lot of the founding fathers, one of the few issues, I would argue, um, because a lot of times we look at the founders as almost sort of unison um, in their beliefs, which is not the case. Um very much not the case actually. They had a lot of disagreement and a lot of, um, a lot of different opinions on on how the country should be made. But this was one of the few areas where they actually were almost unanimous um, was in the area of the, the our military presence and foreign interventions. Um, and this is something that, again, arguably probably more than any other area we have gone further away, from uh, the original intent and the uh, the original vision of the founders uh, as outlined in the Constitution. Um, but as you brought up, the there are a few states that are trying to sort of restore that with the Defend the Guard Act, which I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of my favorite movements um, that is sweeping uh, state legislatures right now. Uh, across across the country, there's one in uh, West Virginia, uh, South Carolina, Wyoming, and I can't remember the other one right now.
1: I think there was one introduced in Oklahoma
0: as well. Oklahoma, okay, yes, and and Rand uh, Rand Paul went out to um, Wyoming to to uh, to vouch for it, essentially, and 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 sort of campaign <laughs> of sorts for it. Um, now these these efforts failed. However, it's still a really important uh thing that is happening right now because the fact that it's happening in the first place signifies that this is something that uh is is gaining momentum and and could happen um realistically in the future.
1: Oh, exactly. And I think in at least two of the states I I think the Wyoming one is one. But in at least two of the states, the people who introduced the bill were veterans themselves, which I think is, is very helpful um, in terms of selling it. For yeah, one
0: thing. West, West Virginia was as well. Uh, Pat McGeehan, um, the West Virginia s- uh, state delegate, was, was the individual who in- introduced that one. So I, I know he's a, a former, I can't remember if he was an officer or just enlisted, but he was, he was in the West Virginia National Guard, I believe.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it um and I think that that's a, like the fact that we think of it that way where oh it's good to have a veteran introduce it, um kind of can help explain the why the having such a large standing army has kind of become the norm. And it it's kind of goes back to um even after World War 1 when we really ramped up kind of into a total war the military drastically shrunk and then ramped back up for World War II and then stayed pretty large because of the Cold War. And um, I think Andrew Bacevich, um, I can't think of which book of his, I think it might be um, The New American Militarism, I think it's called. He himself is a former colonel. Um, He looks at how Uh, being in the military has changed in the United States. And back to World War II, there was a draft. And there's also a draft for Korea and Vietnam. So tons of people served in the military. And um, so it was kind of almost a normal thing. But he points out that what has happened since then, since there's no draft is uh, the military is increasingly like a smaller and smaller percentage of Americans as a portion of the total population have served in the military. And there's kind of, he he argues this is a bad thing, where it's kind of, unless you were in the military, then you don't have credibility to speak about, you know, national security matters. And maybe back when, you know, a large section of the population did serve in the military because they were drafted into it that wasn't as big a thing but now it's increasingly a smaller and smaller it's kind of basically a generational thing and uh poor people basically uh are the ones serving like either you're a military family or you're uh, not very well off so you join the military that's not a good way to formulate our kind of uh Uh, way we think about the military and it's such a a change ryan mcmakin uh, at the mises institute wrote this interesting article that of course got a lot of flack where he pointed out just using lots of historical sources how before being a soldier was completely viewed differently by the general public than how it is today um in terms of it, it wasn't viewed as oh, this heroic person in the military. Like if in the 1880s, if you were a soldier, you were kind of like viewed as a welfare bum. <laughs> um, so, I'm not saying we should bring back an attitude of just scorning people in the military or something, but it does kind of provide a window into how this change in total attitude towards a standing military came about. Whereas before oh, you're in the military during peacetime, you know, <laughs> so, well, why can't you get a job? Mm-hmm. Whereas now, uh, you know, it, the kind of troop worship can go to extreme levels where even, you know, other veterans are like, this is crazy. You right, know? right, yeah. There's, it,
0: it's sort of, the pendulum has sort of swung the other way, especially after, um, especially after 9-11, where it's almost consider blasphemous to even to even question um, military involvement uh, around the world and if you do so then you're questioning the very nature of, um, of the heroics of, of the troops themselves rather than just trying to ensure their, their safety and um, make sure that their families don't have a, a body uh, a body bag that comes home and instead actually has their their husband or their father or their brother come home in one piece
1: yeah exactly and it's kind of an uncomfortable conversation to have but basically to say you know uh our soldiers are dying for nothing in the middle of the afghanistan mountains yeah no one wants to be told their you know father brother son died for no reason but it's kind of if we want to actually honor and and care about people in the military, then we have to question whether they're being put to a, a, a good purpose or whether it's being wasted. And it, it was very, I mean, I was glad to see it happen, but it was also kind of sad after the Afghanistan papers came out. Lots of veterans and, and, and families who, who lost people in the Afghan war were like, uh, this was for no purpose. Yeah. Not and it's kind of if we can do that beforehand <laughs> before we go out into the middle of nowhere, you know, to fight these unending wars, that would be, you know, much better route to go. And it right. means questioning whether soldiers are actually protecting our freedoms by guarding poppy fields in Afghanistan. <laughs> right, yeah, and it's it's a it's an issue that
0: I, I i agree with you it's sort of tough for some people to uh swallow or or stomach the idea that you know there uh someone who in, may have been in their family that may have died uh through these wars may have died for for a cause that was not actually to just protect our freedoms that that shouldn't i think a lot of people whenever they hear that they think that that's just like a slam on the troops or something like that that oh yeah you 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 know you died for nothing great job which is i don't think that's necessarily the case you know nobody should die for for nothing you know that's that's more of a, yeah. a matter of fact like you should be angry that they died for nothing and were sent over there in the first place and while yes they you know a common rebuttal is that They sign up. They know what they're getting into. They know the risks that are associated with the job. Well, yeah, they might know the risks, but that doesn't mean that you should just throw them in a dangerous situation willy-nilly just for the sake of it, just because
1: they signed up for the job. Um, Yeah, I think it's an abuse of trust. Yeah, it is. They're trusting that our leaders will use them for you know they're willing to go to harm's way, but they're trusting that it will be for some good reason and unfortunately it's it's generally not
0: right yeah I, I know that uh, Dan Crenshaw is one that that constantly uses that line that uh, our troops aren't uh, idiots they, they know what they're signing up for well I mean in some cases yeah, but as we see in the Afghanistan papers our, our leaders didn't even know. Uh, what we were setting yeah. up for with with the Afghanistan war, so that you know that statement isn't even true entirely in and of itself. They may know the risk, but it's it's foolish to suggest that we should just throw them in in a
1: risky situation, uh, regardless of of the purpose or the cause. And and Dan Crenshaw always he he uses this very annoying line that so many people do, which is. We have to fight them yeah. over there, so they oh, don't I have hate to fight it. them over here. Yeah. And it's just fight who over here. Yeah, I mean, are, are the are the illiterate Taliban going to somehow build a world class navy and attack us? Uh, I mean, there's yeah, this the people of who literally, literally live in caves. <laughs> terrorism doesn't mean we have to invade the rest of the world to stop it from happening. Right. Yeah,
0: and I I hate that. Uh, I'm sort of going off on a tangent now. I I hate that. People like he have sort of brought that mindset back into the forefront um, because I felt like that mentality had really uh, started. It, it really started to um, be sort of laughable at this point um, in in our in our history uh, after the Iraq War, after the the Afghanistan War. I was starting to see just like yeah, the, these foreign interventions without a purpose. They're, they're just sort of, you know, we're just kicking sand in, in the desert over there. We don't have a real reason. Um, but the fact that you brought that, you know, sort of back into the, the national conversation just really bugs me. Um, because <laughs> for a while, we were we were actually starting to move move on from that mindset. But now we have yeah. to fight it all over again. Yeah. Um, well, we are starting to, uh, we are starting to run down on time here. Uh, Zach, please uh, go ahead and let our audience know where they can find you on social media uh, and where they can find your articles um, whenever they are published.
1: So um, uh, I'm usually published in the American Conservative or um, at the Mises Wire. And uh, I usually post all my articles on Twitter, which is at Zachary Yost. So. Feel free to give me a follow. All right, Zach, we will uh, definitely have
0: to bring you back on uh, when the time is right. So thank you again for joining us on the program, and uh, we'll, we'll have to hear back from you soon.
1: Thanks so much.
0: And that'll do it for this week's edition of the Mill Liberty podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope uh, you enjoyed my guest this week. I want to thank Zach for joining us on the program um, as he has before and we hope to bring him back on again soon. Please, if you don't mind, especially now since you're probably all on quarantine, go ahead and share this around with your friends, with your family, have them take a crack at this program, Uh, have them go ahead and listen to it and uh, try to spread the word but don't spread the virus please Uh, wash your hands next week we will uh, be back on our regularly scheduled program And until then, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Please be sure to follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. Please be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Mill Liberty. By the way, if you haven't yet, the Mill Liberty Initiative uh, released, if you haven't seen yet, I should say, the Mill Liberty Initiative released its first, uh, well, its next big project, the first ever Congressional Liberty Scorecard. It's a big project of ours, and we put a lot of hard work into it, and I think there's a lot of really cool and really fun data uh, to look over, so uh, go ahead and check that out while you're at it. Um, And, of course, you can follow the organization at MillibertyOrg on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook at the Maliberty Initiative. Uh, And if you haven't done so, um, also consider uh, contributing to us on Patreon as well. And with that being said, I'll see you next week.